Welcome to episode seven of the Sports Law Podcast, the review of the year and what to look out for in 2023. I'm delighted to be joined by three of my brilliant colleagues from Blackstone Chambers. As many of you will already know, Blackstone is the undisputed leading set of chambers in sports law, with as many as 60 different barristers practicing in sports law, amongst their other busy practices. Joining me to discuss the most important legal cases and developments in 2022, and what to look out for in 2023, are Tom Delamere Casey, Ravi Mehta, and Celia Rooney. Tom Delamere has been a KC, or leading counsel, for 10 years, and his practice straddles public, competition, regulatory, and commercial law. He has particular experience in sports disputes involving competition law and freedom of movement. He's joining us remotely today, so we can see him on the computer and hopefully you'll be able to hear him just as well as the rest of us. Ravi Mehta is a senior junior. He's been a barrister for 12 years and has a wide ranging practice across all of Chambers' main areas of work with a focus on the crossover between international and European law, public law and commercial litigation. His sports law practice reflects that specialist experience. Celia Rooney is seven years cool and has a particular experience in commercial disputes, sports law, public law, human rights and employment. As well as talking about the developments in sports law, we'll also be talking, as usual, about how to develop as a sports lawyer. And I hope that the fact that our practices and experiences are ever so slightly different should help to give you a rounded insight. So I'm going to go first straight in with the leading developments or leading cases that we've seen in sport over the past year. And can I start with you, Tom? Well, we've had um, two big um, Advocate General's opinions drop uh, that contain uh, the potential answers to many of the questions that have been cropping up time and time again in the field of sports and competition law. The first, which is the one I'm going to talk about, is the International Skating Union case, or the ISU case. And it's about this uh, extremely um, difficult issue, which is conflicts of interest. Um, most European sports governing bodies are set up to both regulate and to operate as commercial entities. They organize the competitions, uh, stage events, etc. And um, in their regulatory capacity, they also exercise what are called sanctioning or approval powers to approve uh, other events uh, operated by uh, other parties wanting to put on skating events or motor racing events. And the difficulty, the, the concern is they will use regulatory powers to keep their competitors out of the market. And that was basically the allegation that the Commission latched into onto in, in the ISU case. They were concerned that the rules of the ISU were so draconian against um, skaters who participated in non-sanctioned events uh, and the decisional practice didn't seem to support the fact that the ISU allowed such events that they um, took the very unusual step of deciding that the relevant rules were what competition law lawyers call restrictions by object which means that they're just per se breaches of competition law and this is obviously set um, a lot of um, lots of people uh, as unease, uh, and that may have lifted somewhat with Advocate General Rantos's opinion, because he's uh, uh, suggesting to the court, it's an advisory opinion, of course, that um, they should overturn the decision of the general court and, by extension, the approach of the commission, and conclude that the approach of the ISU was not um, uh, one that involved a breach of competition by object. Now, I have to say, in that respect, Advocate General Rantos is very much in line with the decisional practice in arbitrations, whether in CAS, sports resolutions, etc. There was a QPR arbitration. Nick and I were both involved in me as an arbitrator. Nick as one of the parties. There was the Saracens case. And in both of those cases, the restriction by object analysis was rejected. But this is a particularly hot topic and I don't think this is even if the court follows the Advocate General's opinion going to be anything like the end of the road because this is in some ways only the weakest type of conflict sanctioning um, obviously capable of serious abuse and that's what lies behind um, the uh, Super League case that Ravi's going to be talking about but 
if you if you take um, another sport, take rugby for instance, and you look at rugby, um, the the problems there stem from the fact that very often the um, the sports governing bodies are actually operating the teams or some of the teams as well as staging the competitions uh, so at one end of the spectrum you have uh, scotland and ireland where the the teams uh, are effectively owned by the relevant um unions you have wales with a half and half model where one of the four teams is owned by the wru and the other three are independent undertakings and you then have England and France, where there are independent clubs, but at least in the case of English rugby, perhaps less so in the case of French rugby, heavily dependent upon funding from the pyramid, from the international game to support them through um, uh, their, their um, uh, expenditure. And um, it creates all kinds of problems um, uh, and all kinds of um, allegations of conflict of interest. I think they're likely to be these types of arguments likely to be very much to the fore in the arguments about how sports uh, are restructured. Obviously, rugby's looking at English rugby's looking at a substantial restructuring. You have the whole uh, scenario in golf. Well, these issues may well come up, um, uh, and it's um, it's a fairly fundamental one as to effectively how close can a regulator get to taking into account its own commercial interests in circumstances where what it says is well we want to make money because we want to reinvest in the grassroots game we want to pass it back to amateurs uh, engagement in, in, in the sport ensuring that children participate and all the other worthwhile things that we do um, and uh, I, I think uh, this is really the first instalment of what is going to be a fairly bumper crop of arguments about proportionality through competition effects rather than through restriction by object. Um, certainly, uh, this is a competition law problem that's passed over my desk a great deal in the last 24 months. And I, I always find it rather hard on those bringing the challenges that regulators hide behind their regulatory good causes and things that they do in the interest of sport in order to protect a commercial monopoly isn't is, how did the advocate general deal with those sort of points well he, he didn't and I, I think to get to the full answer you need to put um the iseu case together with the super league case and the reason why he didn't grapple with it is the commission in their original decision, which was the thing under challenge in the general court and then on, on appeal to the CJU, the commission had taken the somewhat lazy course of investing all of its eggs in the restriction by object basket. And it hadn't done an effects analysis. And I think the answer is in relation to um, uh, the type of problem you described, Nick, there needs to be a careful granular analysis of the effects of the measure supported by expert evidence in order to substantiate the case of harm. Uh, one, one of the questions I had, Tom, was um, obviously, as I understand it, that case had slightly, it might be said, extreme facts in that there were lifetime bans. To what extent do you think, for people listening who aren't skaters or dealing with skating, do you think it's a broader application? Well, I, I think I think the um, I think the thing that every single sports governing body will take away is that there is no um, uh, per se breach of competition law by by having a conflict of interest in being both a regulator and a commercial operator, and there is no obligation to structurally separate, uh, which is you know in some ways a departure from the the, the view that the commission was extolling 20 years ago when it forced F1 to break up into the rights holder and the regulator. I don't think that would necessarily happen now, but but then further controls in the form of very clear criteria, maybe independent decision maker, external parties being involved, rights of appeal. Those are the kind of safeguards that are required. Of course, the other big case you mentioned there, Tom, um, we're coming on to Ravi, you're, you're going to talk about the ESL case, the European Super League, and the Advocate General's opinion in that case. Yes. Thanks, Nick. It's great to be part of this discussion. Um, in terms of the Super League case, uh, what I want to reflect on are the implications for the importance of what people call the pyramid of sport. I don't think people will need much introduction to the background. It was splashed all over the papers um, about 18 months ago. Uh, the Advocate General himself referred to that case as 
connected with the very existence of the organizational structure of the modern game, which I think is Eurospeak for this is very important. In April 2021, an initiative was launched by some of the highest profile clubs in Europe in professional football, including Real Madrid, Barcelona <coughs> and Juventus, um, to establish the so-called European Super League, which would consist of a partially closed league involving 12 to 15 professional clubs who would remain permanent members and various other qualifying members who would drop in and out. And the plans appeared in the papers, at least, to collapse after the six Premier League clubs announced that they would no longer be taking part, um, in part due to the public's reaction. FIFA and UEFA, when faced with this, both issued public statements to the effect that they would not recognise the new body and that any club and or any player that took part in them would be expelled from UEFA and FIFA competitions, which of course, um, given recent events, would include something like the World Cup and the Euros, not just club events. The Super League, uh, the company um, that was representing these clubs, brought interim relief proceedings in the court in Madrid, um, which were in fact granted in order to protect its position. And they sought a preliminary reference from the Court of Justice in Luxembourg those proceedings are still pending, and as Tom mentioned earlier, all we've had is the indicative opinion of the Advocate General, but that is weighty in its own way. And it's, I think, notable that in that case, 14 member states intervened, almost all entirely in favour of UEFA and FIFA, as well as Iceland, interestingly. <laughs> um, the Advocate General stressed the constitutional recognition of what he called the European sports model, which is something that the European Commission has been talking about for 20 years. Um, and that's the idea that sporting disciplines, including football, but not limited to it, are organized along geographic lines with a single entity per geographic area, leading up from amateur sport all the way up to the pinnacle of professional sport. And in his view, that was an intentional choice across the EU, in contradistinction to alternative models which are long-standing, in particular the American franchise model, which often involves closed leagues. Um, and another interesting observation that he made uh, was that sport is, is still a bit different. He said, a degree of equality and a certain competitive balance are necessary, characteristics which distinguish sport from other sectors. Because effectively in other sectors, if you aren't competitive, you go bust. The Advocate General concluded uh, a number of interesting things. The first was that, as Tom mentioned, prior approval rules, so FIFA and UEFA having to say, this is okay, were not a restriction by object. And, but then what he identified as the problem in the case was that the clubs and the players wanted to keep their feet in both camps, what he called dual membership. So they wanted still to participate in UEFA competitions, including, for example, the Premier League or the Euros, but they also wanted to compete in their own Super League competition in lieu of something like the Champions League. And he... Uh, he thought that that was material when contrasted with the sporting model because he effectively said it would disrupt the balance that had been struck in the long-standing pyramid. The third interesting thing that he found was that he distinguished between sanctions that might be imposed on individual players who he said might not have been involved in the decisions leading up to um, the breach of what is amusingly and romantically charged is called the prohibited relations rule by uh, UEFA. Um, but w he said that might be disproportionate because they had nothing to do with it, as opposed to clubs, for example. The reason I think it's interesting and a counterpoint to what Tom was discussing was that he really focused in that case on the arguments about sporting merit being inherent in the existing ecosystem and that a closed league might be contrary to the idea. He did recognise, as I'll mention a bit later, uh, that that might not always be the case. But the Advocate General seems to give weight to those who think that the existing model is fairer and um, involves equal opportunities for all. Before One, one question, Sorry, Ravi, that really screamed out at me is, is one consequence of closing a leak for whatever reason? We know that all kinds of pressures and reasons why people are contemplating moving towards an American team sport model, um, not least all the strain after COVID. Does that bring with it the risk that, that once you've closed the league, it makes it much harder for you refuse to, to sanction. Then what do you mean? refuse to sanction a competing closed league? 
Yes, well, quite. You either have multiple clubs or you have the club and then the ordinary analysis, um, which is the traditional analysis of competition law, might apply where there are what we call special responsibilities. But you're quite right that that hasn't really occurred in the United States, interestingly. But theoretically, you could have lots of different closed leagues um, that do their own thing. Um, and so I wonder whether some of this is historical uh, and cultural or whether it's actually going to lead to something completely new in the future. And I think that's the interesting thing for next year. Isn't the, the case also one of those examples of bad cases making potentially bad law? Because you have a, a it's pr probably the same point Tom's making in, in a different way. You have a, a nascent cartel that wants to be the most anti-competitive uh, thing in sport, bringing a competition law claim against UEFA. And you mentioned one part, I haven't had a chance to read the opinion yet, but um, the players, that, that was interesting to me. If you're Harry Kane, and you have no choice because your employer tells you you're going to play in the Super League and then suddenly you're not allowed to play for England and you lose lots of endorsements. Surely he's got a claim. Well, exactly. That's the interesting thing uh, he recognised. And also he said national teams would lose out, so England would lose out. Why should England be punished by the actions of a private few? Um, so that's where this is going to be fascinating in terms of where the court lands, because, of course, the member states are all concerned ultimately about that and lifting the cup, as Messi did um, this weekend. It's a bizarre case, though, isn't it? I mean, the reference occurred before UEFA could even put in a defence. I've never, in my 28 years of being an EU lawyer, I've never known a, a reference be made at such a precipitate and early stage. It's just very, very strange. Yes, I mean, I think that brings me on quite neatly to the second topic I also wanted to flag back last year, because it's this question of bad cases, as you say, Nick, but also context is king. And the politically charged context, as Tom says, at the time, there were, you know, demonstrations in the street, everyone felt very strongly, the court was fascinated and wanted to grapple with it. And hence, as Tom says, has ploughed ahead. Um, but similarly, we've seen other uh, issues around geopolitics and sport this year. So, uh, of course, there's been much public discourse about the World Cup in Qatar. But I thought the most important example of it this year was the way that sport reacted to a geopolitical event, which was the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. And we've seen a really mixed reaction by sporting bodies across the board. Football, of course, took the view that Russia couldn't take part in um, ongoing qualifying, even though one might say that the rules of the game had already been fixed and they were part of an ongoing competition, but changed the rules of that game. Um, athletics took the view that Russian athletes wouldn't be able to compete under the Russian flag. And I think particularly interesting for the optics of the internal potential inconsistencies within a sport, you had tennis where the All England Club and Wimbledon decided not to allow Russian and Belarusian athletes, um, participants to take part whereas none of the other tours did. And as our listeners might be aware, the ATP reacted negatively to that. And I believe two weeks ago has proposed to impose a fine of $1 million. Mm -hmm. And that brings it totally into focus this controversy in sports law, which is fascinating. Um, there's this uh, long-standing philosophy that sport is apolitical and that somehow it can bridge a political gap. But of course, it always appears in a political um, context. And so... There are moral questions about whether sport, like any other industry, should react to a geopolitical event. But as lawyers, I think there's the more interesting question of um, what do we do about existing rules? And should we be changing existing rules or should we allow other arenas to deal with that? For example, parliaments and European parliaments and that sort of thing. Well, I'm going to leave that question floating in the air and turn to Celia next to tell us uh, what she thinks were some of the most important legal cases and developments in 22. Thanks, Nick. Uh, slightly different uh, approach from, uh, from my perspective. One of the biggest things I think to come out of 2022 was the White Review, the independent uh, report that examined allegations of mistreatment in gymnastics, which was led by Anna White, uh, then QC. The review was prompted by disclosures made to the press in 2020 by several current and former gymnasts about alleged abuse in the sport and came pretty quickly in the wake of the Netflix documentary called Athlete A, which reported on sexual abuse in US gymnastics involving former USA gymnastics doctor Larry Nassar. 
which really brought the extent of potential safeguarding issues in the field of gymnastics to the attention of the public. In the UK context, the allegations were not primarily about sexual abuse, but were instead focused on emotional and physical abuse by coaches. A common theme of the disclosures was that British gymnastics had not only failed to prevent abuse, but had actually condoned the pursuit uh, of certain practices in the national and international sporting interest. The White Review heard from individual gymnasts, parents, carers and guardians, as well as coaches, and from various members of British gymnastics staff and former staff. The report was published on the 16th of June uh, this year and concluded that uh, gymnastics had not put well-being and welfare, or more generally in the legal language, the best interests of the children at the centre of the sport. The report also concluded that complaints had not been appropriately dealt with by British gymnastics and many clubs, in particular in the period running up to 2016. Over 400 submissions were received in response to the call for evidence in 2020, of which 40% reported physical abuse and 50% reported emotional abuse. Some 30 of the submissions reported sexual abuse. Commonly reported treatment included physical chastisement for perceived transgressions, uh, being required to train on broken bones, and the withholding of food and water where tra uh, training was perceived as being inadequate. The majority of reported abuse was amongst female athletes and in that respect, uh, control and demeaning behaviour about weight gain was also highlighted. The review made 17 broad recommendations across four areas, um, which were safeguarding and welfare, complaints handling, standards and education and governance and oversight. And I think was broadly welcomed as being uh, demonstrative of a shift in gymnastics as to the approach uh, to welfare and wellbeing. But survivor groups have suggested that it might not go far enough. And one thing in particular that was floated was the idea of a cap for training hours on young athletes, in particular young athletes uh, who below a certain age. Stepping back, uh, the White Review was really, I think, the first of its kind, save perhaps for an earlier report by British Cycling in 2017, that from a safeguarding perspective focused not only on historic allegations of sex abuse, but actually more generally the idea of physical and emotional abuse uh, for young athletes. In that respect, gymnastics is obviously a very physically grueling sport, but it's not alone in that. And I think we can expect further, uh, further reports of this kind and certainly the lessons learned should be something that I think are, is on the radar of sporting governing bodies more generally, clubs and all the way down to grassroots level. And Celia, if I can just, glad you mentioned that case because I was, involved in acting for many of the gymnasts in their claim against the regulator, British Gymnastics. And I wonder if the other interesting thing about that case relates back to what Tom said at the beginning, this problem with regulators also being the commercial rights holders. Because what's interesting about the safeguarding issue in British Gymnastics, it's not just dealing with a few bad apples, it's dealing with the whole culture that British Gymnastics as a regulator kind of encouraged in order to get more British gold medals, a whole culture of training. And so when you have that conflict between being the regulator and also the commercial rights holder of the sport, you can inevitably have these regulatory problems, can't you? Yeah, and I, th I think it's a really interesting issue that was highlighted in the White Review was the idea that British gymnastics had managed to very successfully uh, monetize rights, commercialize the sport, pursue success but had not really applied um, safeguarding principles with the same vigour. I certainly think, whatever the implications in that respect, there's certainly a good argument for saying that the people that are in charge of these things should never be wearing multiple hats, that safeguarding is, I think, too important and objective to be left to the people that have other interests at play. Uh, another issue I think that came up in 2022 that I think is worth a bit of um, uh, discussion is the idea of trans rights in sport. There were two headline cases. One is a US case, Lia Thomas, the US swimmer who had previously swam for UPenn's men's team before starting hormone therapy in 2019, but whose participation in the women's events sparked protests across the US and eventually a ban by FINA, the world's aquatics body. FINA has decided that athletes need to have transitioned by the age of 12 to participate in female events 
And in reality, what that does is prohibit all trans athletes from uh, participating in sports that are regulated by that body. A bit closer to home, you also had Emily Bridges, the UK cyclist who was assigned male at birth, but who began hormone therapy in 2021. She's currently banned from racing as a woman, but British Cycling are still in the process of reviewing the transgender and non-binary participation policy that they brought in. So this is very much a watch this space area. But much of the, the noise, certainly in the UK in this space, has been prompted by guidance published by the Sports Councils in September 2021. And that effectively was a call to arms for sports governing bodies to consider the extent to which they could have greater participation by trans athletes in their sports. Some sports governing bodies have taken up that call, others have not. So I think it's an area where we can expect further litigation. Finally, just to highlight a, a particular case from 2022, I think the case of Fulham Football Club versus Jones is worth a mention. Uh, it's a shout out to Blackstone's very own Luca Chris Lannan. Uh, the case was heard by the High Court in April of this year. Fulham um, were effectively challenged by a player from an under 18 side from another club. He said that he had been tackled by a Fulham player uh, in a tackle that was effectively brought about the end of his career, a serious ankle injury that he said had ended his career. He issued proceedings against Fulham, asserting that the tackle had been an, either a negligent tackle or even amounted to an assault and argued that Fulham were liable as his employer. The judge at first instance had found that the tackle was negligent, but on appeal, Mr. Justice Lane found that Fulham, uh, the judge below had wrongly equated the legal standard for finding of civil liability in the sports context uh, with effectively a breach of the rules of the game. Those two things should not be conflated in the eyes of the judge. It's an interesting, I think, decision for anyone that is pursuing these types of claims or defending them uh, and has potential ramifications for the sort of claims that we're seeing as well uh, in the sphere of head injuries uh, and other tortious claims of that sort. So again, watch this space. Thank you very much, Celia. Um, I was going to talk about two cases, but I'm only going to do one now in view of time and you don't want to hear from me too much. Um, and that's the Yorkshire cricket racism allegations case um, in disciplinary proceedings currently ongoing um, where Azim Rafiq, the former professional cricket player and chief whistleblower, is the main witness about serious allegations of racism by Yorkshire cricket and a number of senior uh, cricket players in Yorkshire. Uh, he made an application for the proceedings, the substantive proceedings to be in public, the entirety of those proceedings to be in public. And that application was ultimately successful, albeit it is currently under appeal. Um, and the reason it was successful, or what was at the heart of that application, was the application of the open justice principle in a sports disciplinary case. And, and, and having argued that, I thought a lot about it. And when you normally talk to other lawyers about the open justice principle, particularly when you speak to sports lawyers, they, they may say, well, that applies in the court, in state courts. It doesn't apply in the same way in sports tribunals. And, and I, I think the question that comes from this case is, well, why? Why should that be the case? The open justice principle is about holding judges to account by public scrutiny. It's about inspiring the public confidence in the judicial process. And why should that not apply to a sports tribunal in the same way it applies to the court, if the subject matter is of genuine public interest? Obviously, if it's a purely private dispute, it doesn't apply. And of course, racism in, a, in the national sport of cricket is of such public importance that a parliamentary committee has held hearings on it in public. Uh, it, it, it's undoubtedly of public interest, but so are so many of those other sports disputes that we're involved in, which are held by um, closed sports bodies. Uh, if you think about the Saracens case that Tom mentioned, uh, the one about salary caps, it's just as important for everyone else in rugby and all the other participants to know whether a people are on a level playing field. And it was a similar argument that <coughs> Newcastle United raised in their arbitration against the Premier League when they wanted that hearing to be in public because what it was dealing with was whether there was a fair application of the owners and directors test 
to Newcastle compared to other clubs or whether improper motives came in and so on and so forth. So these are all things of public interest. And what actually now is almost routine across these types of disputes, unlike in private arbitration, for example, is that the bodies publish their decisions in any event because they know they're of public interest. So if they do publish their decisions, if it is of public interest, why on earth should the hearings not be in public in the first place? Unless, of course, there can be specific witness protection issues which arise in the normal civil courts. And, and I'd be interested to know if what my other guests think of that question. I strongly agree with you, uh, Nick. I've, I've long had a deep concern about, um, particularly from the perspective of players, I have to say, about the bargain that's presented where effectively any dispute of any uh, note ends up having to be litigated through CAS or sports resolutions and you've uh, lost your entitlement to have your grievance heard in public. Um, the notion that this is grounded on consent I think is fairly remote. Um, uh, indeed it's illusory really. Uh, and there is Strasbourg case law um, about the circumstances in which you can waive your right to a public hearing and it's it's actually quite strict when you go through the case law. I'm, I'm constantly surprised that people don't push back against this harder and the practice you've identified of public, publishing arbitration awards is a reflection of the weakness, I think, of the position of the SGBs who demand arbitration. It's one thing to say, I want to have specialist judges. It's another thing to say, I want to have specialist judges and how they conduct the proceedings and what they do shouldn't be subject to any um, meaningful public scrutiny. I think the second step is an uncomfortable one. I suppose the counterpoint to that is, I mean, <clears throat> on the human rights point, obviously the, the argument was raised in Pakistan, I think, which was the challenge Successfully. to using CAS and so on. But I, I think the, the question mark really is, should it be lawyers who decide this question anyway, rather than sports people? And so I can see what Tom says about the bargaining power and so on. Although in some sports that's more acute than in others, given uh, means, ability to challenge and so on. I think the real question it raises is, to what extent is sports specific anymore? And that's a question that's been vexing sport law for about 20 years. But if, if you think it's specific at all, then you might as well have a specific procedure. If you don't, and that's why it's interesting that this Advocate General has, has re-emphasized that in a way, even though formally sport is no different to any other. But otherwise... He, I, he, he touches on it, Ravi, expressly in the ISA, ISU case, because one of the issues in the cross appeal was whether or not the decision of the General Court to up, um, effectively decide that the recourse to arbitration was... Um, was okay, consistent with competition law, um, was that correct? And, and Advocate General Rantos concluded it was. But it doesn't really get to the nub of the issue that Nick is describing. No, no, I get that. But it seems to me that actually my preference, rather than lawyers debating it, is that given what Nick says about these being matters of public interest, I think some of them are in fact of public interest in the kind of defined term sense. <laughs> Others are just fascinating to members of the public, um, is that we should have proper discussions about them, for example, in par Parliament. We have public fora, we have fan surveys, we have all of that sort of thing. You could have player surveys also but the difficulty I have is that actually this should be a decision imposed on the participants rather than the participants saying I want a private system or I don't if we knew that there was a unanimity of viewpoints from all for example basketball players that they don't want a private system that would to my mind really strengthen the argument for us why to not actually... just give them the choice <laughs> which is which is what Cass and FIFA have decided in light of the Pechstein decision in serious cases of doping and corruption, you give the accused the choice. Seems completely correct to me. Yeah, I, I can see the way to that. So um, I'm going to move on to uh, an area I know many of our listeners enjoy, which is how you get into sports law, your route. And I'm going to kick off this because I, I was going to tell my Razor Ruddock story as it involves Tom de la Mer, who's here today. Um, I was fortunate enough in my first year of practice back in 2002 to be sent out to an employment tribunal somewhere in the West Country to defend Swindon Town Football Club against a rock-solid claim brought by uh, former Liverpool and England player Neil Ruddock for unpaid wages. And the reason I was sent there was largely because I was very, very cheap 
Um, <laughs> it, it was it was those days that we used to be sent out in our first long year for <laughs> for less than the price of a train fare in order to get experience on our feet. And and Tom, of course, was was back then even far too grand and expensive uh, to be sent to, to that. Break, <laughs> as per usual, I think it's the real Indeed. story. Uh, the case was unwinnable, um, but I managed to. Uh, help negotiate a settlement which left everyone happy and I learned four things I think from that very first exposure um, the first is simply that there was legal work in sport which until then I didn't even know because it, it, it was still a, a, a relatively growing new area back then and I was lucky enough to be in a chambers that did it um, secondly that having a, a practical and commercial approach to a dispute is probably more important and certainly just as important as being a good lawyer and knowing the law when you're dealing in sport. Um, thirdly, that so much of what you end up doing in practice generally and how you get there is to do with luck, good luck and chance. Um, but fourthly, it's what you do with that luck and that chance. And if you particularly like an area of law, you're going to try and do more. And I, I was lucky enough to do more with that solicitor and after a few years, got a case with uh, the team I supported from childhood, QPR. And that led me to end up offering and spending some time doing pro bono work to work for free for the club, giving them legal advice. Um, something I would never dream of doing now. Uh, not, not because it was for free, but mainly because of the conflicts that it caused. But the exposure that gave me to the football industry, to disputes, practical commercial disputes clubs have with sponsors, agents, regulators and so on, was invaluable in then later building my practice. So that, that's, that's a, the route that I was very lucky to take. Um, and, and I think the, the other thing that, that comes out of that, which probably reflects us all in this chambers and again we're, we're all very lucky to be here is that we've all developed in in this chambers um, a, a, a breadth of different practical areas all of which have uh, very useful applications in sport and so I don't know how it is for Ravi and Celia now but when I started we used to all do a bit of public law, a bit of commercial law, a bit of employment law and learning all those things was very useful to then apply later to sport. Um, and the very final thing I would say is that marketing and putting yourself out there and making it clear that you want to do this kind of work is certainly no substitute for being a good lawyer and doing the work well, but it is something you need to do in sport. Uh, but not only is it something you need to do, it's something that's fun and interesting to do. And this podcast, which we're all doing now, being a good example of it, I think has almost, um, I, I, I'll get told off if I get this wrong, but at least four or five, five times more listeners than any other type of podcast that Chambers produces, even though it's only from a narrow area, because there is so much interest in the work we do. So we're, we're very lucky to do it. And marketing it is not a chore. It's, uh, it's enjoyment. Um, Tom, what are your tips? Well, I, I want to say some of the same things that you do, Nick, really, to be honest. I'm, I'm a jack of all trades by nature. You're, you're a sports lawyer. Um, and only do sports law. I do all kinds of work, crazy vari variation, but they all provide routes into sports law. And the good news is for your listeners that there are lots and lots of different ways to get exposure to or gain access to doing disputes about sport. So in my case, I started off doing historic employment covenant disputes, a um, bit of commercial argy-bargy about gate money and that kind of stuff. You know, Razor Ruddock had frozen our gate money, if you remember, originally. And then I had an early dispute again, I think, leading you, the Pantano case. I did restrictive covenant cases about Adrian Newey um, leaving McLaren, uh, or going to McLaren, rather. Um, but then my background as an EU lawyer, free movement, Bosman, uh, then into competition law, entertainment law. I studied, you know, was a pupil under the great Ian Mill, and there's a lot of similarities between entertainment law, which doesn't really generate the work it used to, and sports law, soft IP. And then the thing that's always fascinated me is the interface between public law 
and um, sports. Because these sports governing bodies have very real powers to shape people's lives. David Panic won an early victory, keeping uh, the FA and many sports bodies out of judicial review. And the response has been not that there's unaccountable power. It's been two things. It's been the rise of proxy regulation, really proxy public law through the guise of competition law. Cases like Mecca Medina, really, all they ultimately deliver is a fairness and proportionality analysis through competition law. And then you've got the, the Bradley principles applied in private law, which are basically public law principles. So I, I think there's for, for someone with other strings to their bow, which is true for most sports lawyers, there are lots of routes into doing sports law. And really, if I'm going to nail my colours to the mast on this controversial topic, there is no such thing as sports law. There is just a deep, deep, deep knowledge of sport and sporting clients and sporting problems. And you need the full legal toolkit to solve those problems. And you don't want to be beguiled by people telling you, oh, it's special, it's sport, because that argument very often blows up in your face. Yes, absolutely. Celia, as a slightly more junior barrister, um, perhaps with the most recent experience of us all, uh, what, what would your advice be? Well, I, as you know, Nick, was one of your pupils, so uh, not everyone can be quite so lucky. Um, but I would encourage any budding barristers interested in sports law to consider applying to Blackstone purely because of the particular breadth and depth of the sports work available here. Um, but if you're not uh, so lucky to come to us, uh, there are nonetheless a huge number of ways to get involved in sports work. Um, one of the things I'd recommend is doing some pro bono work through sports resolutions. It's excellent uh, in terms of opportunities for cross-examination, uh, but it's also great for those that haven't yet made a name for themselves in the sports work because it's a real access, uh, a real opportunity to do cases, and there's a huge number of them available. Uh, there are also a number of conferences and events that I'd encourage people to go to. Uh, the British Association for Sports Law holds its annual barbecue in our very own chambers, and it's uh, really well attended every year by genuinely you know, impressive people working in this field. Uh, and Blackstone and others, such as Law and Sport, hold a lot of conferences every year that de debating exactly the sort of issues that we've been debating today. I'd also encourage people, I think, to consider <coughs> blogging. Uh, again, Law and Sport is one such forum, but there are a number of different outlets that publish blogs. And it's, again, a really good way to make your name if this is not an area that you've, uh, at the moment, got a wide reputation in. Uh, for any Keen Bean students listening in, there's an annual sports law arbitration moot, uh, which is a worldwide competition run in cooperation with the CAS, the Court of Arbitration for Sport. The final is held uh, in Lausanne at the CAS itself, and it's open to all current students. Overall, I suppose I'd echo the comments that you've heard from both Nick and Tom. Uh, there's no one uh, way to be a sports lawyer, so be creative and be proactive in seeking out the work. But secondly, seize the opportunities, even if it means burning the midnight oil once in a while to land an interesting case. Overall, I suppose I think this is an area of law where fortunes favour the brave. Thank you. Ravi? I would echo all that has come before. Um, like Celia, obviously, having trained and, and practised at Blackstone, I've had the luck, as you said, Nick, and the great fortune to work with many of the leading sports lawyers um, in the country and internationally. Obviously, Nick and Tom, um, Adam Lewis, Michael Belloff, Ian Mill, to name some of the many. Um, but I think f in terms of the independent development of practice, there are two key strands of my experience that really stand out, particularly for sports work, <laughs> spontaneity and immediacy. In terms of spontaneity, um, one of the really fun bits of sports law is how unpredictable and exciting it can be. Um, and one of my favorite stories about that is the sort of myth, oh, I don't know whether it's entirely true, but the myth of how the lawyer who acted for Mr. Bosman came to act for him, uh, famously meeting him in a pub somewhere in Liège, uh, where Mr. Bosman was um, bearing his sorrows after not being able to secure the transfer that he wished. And the young lawyer, who I believe was in his early 20s, so was braver than, than I was, um, went over to him having recognized him and said, what's going on? How can I, how can I help? And heard the story and went, well, you know, there's this thing called EU law and we might be able to do something about it. And both he and the litigant had the courage and the bravery and the creativity to go for it. And as we all know, 
tr dramatically transform not only his industry, but many others. Um, such, so much so that it was one of the main topics in Brexit. Um, now, I wish I could claim, uh, have the same claim to fame, but it's definitely been something I've noticed. Uh, chance discussions with people, interesting ideas that people float over a pint or wherever you might be, and, and not just letting that pass and going, actually, let's do something about that. The other feature I highlighted was immediacy, and that comes partly from the nature of what we're discussing. On-field decisions can be unpredictable and surprising and can lead to some of the most fun early cases that I did. Also, often acting pro bono or um, acting for a, an amateur player who'd been charged with doping offences and uh, being instructed one day and acting the next. But also some of the biggest cases that land on your doorstep on the 24th of December and need resolving Always. by the next day. Um, but I, I would echo what everyone else has said, which is... It's exciting, it's fast moving, and so jump on it when, when you can. Thank, thanks very much, all of you, for that. Um, finally, what should we be looking out for in 2023 and beyond? What do we think are going to be some of the most important legal cases or developments in sport? Tom, I'm going to start with you. Well, um, there are going to be further sanctioning disputes, I suspect. Um, they're not going to be in football because I suspect the the will certainly for English and many other European football clubs to go there is uh, very strongly abated at the moment. But rugby and I think the Premiership rugby is going to be the big um, one to watch because everything suggests that there's likely to be a substantial reshaping of the competition, the number of participants in the competition the conditions for promotion and relegation, whether or not there is promotion and relegation. Uh, all of that, I think, has the potential to generate um, much disquiet and, and, and litigation. Uh, second predicted area of legal soreness, uh, the financial regulations in F1. Uh, I can't believe that next year, F1 being what it is, that someone won't find some basis to sue someone in relation to some breach of the regulations, given how um, pivotals, relatively modest amounts of money, can 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 be in terms of on-track advantage, uh, and certainly that that seems a plausible candidate. Um, then uh, I think the trend that I've seen of ever greater fragmentation of sports rights to support niche viewing to support OTT platforms, to support gambling in all of its various forms, and to support scouting is going to be a rich generator of work. And I think it's going to be work that isn't about sport itself, but it's going to be work about content generated by sport. That's going to be a big uh, a growth area. I think the IP lawyers in particular are going to be having lots of commercial disputes about sports rights and maybe even some competition law disputes of the kind that came to the head in the sport radar uh, litigation that was um, uh, before the cat in October. Um, so uh, that plus the pending rulings of the CJU in relation to the ISU and Super League cases, I think are going to be the big things to look out for, in my view. Thank you, Tom. Um, I'll mention three things. Firstly, just very briefly, um, this month we're recording in December, FIFA finally announced they are bringing in the new football agents regulations. I think they are coming in in sort of milder form uh, sometime next year and then uh, October next year, the hard cap, 3% cap, and many of the agents have already said they're going to challenge that on competition law grounds. So that's going to be an interesting case. Um, perhaps of even greater significance is the news we also had in December that the idea of a, or the recommendation of an independent statutory regulator in football is now back on track. Um, we're due to hopefully have a white paper by May and legislation by 24. It was briefly shelved by the short-lived Liz Truss regime, um, but has now apparently been brought back by the new current uh, regime in power at the time of recording. 
Um, that will be very interesting because if there is in fact an independent statutory regulator, it's going to be the biggest shake-up of football regulation in this country since the breakaway of the Premier League in the early 1990s. There is going to be a, a whole lot of questions about what its scope should be, what should it regulate, how should it regulate, and also who regulates the regulator. And going back to Tom's point, quasi-public law, if it's a statutory regulator, it will, of course, be amenable to judicial review in public hearings, in the High Court, and so on. Um, the only question of any importance, Nick, is what's it going to be called? Surely we're going to have to call it off-foot. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, so th that's a big one. And then the, the other area, again, relates to something Tom said. And it's a whole growth of everything that is, is perhaps usefully or unusefully described under the umbrella of, of, of the metaverse, but the whole growth of new commercial products and derivatives and ways of exploiting um, products and things, whether they exist or not, that come out of football. Uh, and one particular interesting area that's going to be controversial in the next year is the use of player data. Uh, in a number of sports, in particular in football, where you increasingly have betting, gaming, or so-called football analyst companies who make huge profits from their use of players' tracking and performance data uh, when it's not at all clear that the players have given consent to those parties to use that data. Uh, and when, of course, uh, that data uh, is personal data under data protection law belonging to the players. And so what are the legal implications and commercial implications of that? Uh, you've already seen some stuff about Project Red Card challenging it. And I think just a couple of months ago or a month ago, FIFA Pro um, uh, brought in a, a new players data rights charter, international charter. And so I think that whole area it is going to be of interest, as is other elements of that Tom touched on, but the, the ways that um, increased technology uh, and the use of already controversial use of things like NFTs, as well as the development of eSports and other products linked to profit and gambling are likely to be at uh, an important cutting edge of legal developments in this area. Uh, yeah, I would echo what you have both identified so far. Um, the word that sticks out for me is new format, um, which I think will manifest itself in many different ways. We have new formats in established sports, and by that I mean things like, for example, the discussions about the format of the World Cup, which FIFA has launched off the back of what it says is the success of the most recent World Cup, increasing team participation. Uh, of course, there are pending investigations about uh, bidding processes and things like that, which um, may or may not come to the fore in the coming year. There's also new formats for clubs with FIFA's announcement of an expanded Club World Cup. We know that in football, again, UEFA has in recently introduced new competitions like the Conference League, but there are ongoing discussions constantly uh, about more football, more football. Um, but we also have the concept of new formats in other sports in a closed league. So that's what, what Tom mentioned about the Super League um, and obviously the golf dispute. But there are other sports also discussing franchise-based models. For example, we had the launch last year of the 100, uh, which will be coming to its second year this year. And... Uh, let's say, the, the views on whether it's a successful financial model, whether it gives new opportunities for players to play outside the traditional hierarchies. Um, of course, that sort of model has been very successful in India and in other markets. Um, there's also, uh, as, as you've both mentioned, the development, I would say, of digital technologies, which creates either subsidiary formats, so gambling on existing competitions, for example, but also new competitions, which is the eSports gaming, where it can be completely disconnected from what's happening in the, let's say, real-world sport, um, and is now in an incredibly lucrative market. My experience of it thus far is that it's not yet at the litigation stage, but that should be of interest to anyone listening who doesn't necessarily want to be a disputes lawyer. As far as I'm aware, there's plenty of commercial work going on in terms of drafting contracts, negotiations about 
intellectual property rights, but also commercial agreements, um, remuneration, and as Tom pointed out earlier, there'll be employment law consequences for esports gamers who themselves are increasingly celebrities in their own right. But also then you have digital gambling and the digitalization of sports consumption down to betting on individual bowling in cr cricket. There have been cases in India about that, but also in other jurisdictions that will be of interest. I think in baseball, that's also been of interest. The final thing I think that's worth watching and of interest is contact sports and this idea that um, traditional approaches to sport should be questioned and should be re-examined given the potential impact particularly on children but also on long-standing participants of sport whether in rugby or in football or in many others in American football there's of course been a discussion of that as I understand it in Australia there's a very live discussion in Parliament about what to do about contact sports should there simply be guidance should there be a recognition of legal claims and that I think is another um, fast developing area Thank you, Ravi. Celia? Just three additional points, I suppose, to keep uh, on your radar. The first is the case of Arsenal Football Club and others versus Alliance Insurance PLC, by which no less than eight football clubs, including a few of the big names in the Premier League, uh, are suing their insurers in respect of cover for matches cancelled during the COVID-19 pandemic. The case follows a decision from the Supreme Court in the Financial Conduct Authority versus Arch Insurance, and that was a test case effectively arising out of the pandemic to do with business interruption. Otherwise, I think there are two reviews that's probably worth being aware of. The first is the review into the future of women's football, which comes in the wake of the Lionesses' uh, achievements in the Euro 2022 Championship. And one of the big issues there will obviously be pay and prize money in light of that win. The second is the Listed Events Digital Rights Review, which will look at whether the government's free-to-air listed events rules should be reformed to guarantee digital access to, public, uh, to the public uh, of major events. The potential ramifications of the re review are at present anticipated to be limited, uh, where most of the major events are already ob obviously already showing free-to-air, but there are potential commercial consequences for streaming and for catch-up rights where there are currently rights uh, and matches sold exclusively to broadcasters other than a public service broadcaster. That's certainly a hardy perennial, that last one, speaking as the person who acted for the UK in the um, Commission in Belgium and Commission in the UK cases about our listed events legislation applied to the Euros and the World Cup. And the one thing I think can confidently be predicted is there'll be an enormous mailbag uh, for someone full of letters from irate cricket fans about the um, <laughs> lack, of, lack of cricket on, on TV. Uh, the one, one of, there's one other trend listening to you guys that really jumps to mind to me, and it's this. Uh, the US sports are light years ahead in many ways in terms of commercializing their products. Um, and two things are happening in the US. First of all, the US is dealing with fairly widespread legalization of gambling on sport. Uh, and they've been learning from the Europeans for once, um, but big things are happening there. And I suspect that will be driver of quite a lot of litigation or potential litigation, and certainly a lot of commercial work. The, the second thing is, the bigger and more powerful and more confident sports are beginning to cut out the middleman, or at least to do so in certain circumstances. They're broadcasting their own product. Mm. They're streaming to their own fans. Uh, they're cutting out uh, free-to-air, uh, uh, cutting out cable um, where it suits them, where the markets are sufficiently mature that they know that the people will latch onto the product directly. And I think we may see uh, an appetite for moving towards more of that. One of the things I always bang on about is that everyone, when talking about broadcasting and competition or sport, always points to the commission decisions. And I think those decisions are dead. They're literally dead. The, the world has changed. You don't s sign up to a 24... I'm, I'm old enough to remember this. You don't sign up to a 24-month contract with Sky paying a small fortune and committing to all their product in order to watch the football anymore. You can sign up for one game. Uh, on a different provider each time if you want to. 
and that's the world we're we're moving towards and and that's a world in which the most nimble or the most powerful can extract maximum dollar for their dollar is the right currency <laughs> maximum dollar for their product uh, and i think that could uh, begin to generate some frictions too and shake up some of the orthodoxies about who the sports broadcasters are who the big players are etc well thank you very much um to all our fabulous and fascinating guests for that um tremendous insight into the developments uh, your own paths and what to look out for there's a lot there and i think from our discussion that one thing is clear that um there's going to be lots of interesting new dynamic work for people in this area over the next year and beyond. As I mentioned, we're recording this at the end of December. And so you may have detected you've been listening to a box of frogs as well as the four of us. We all in one way or another had um, uh, seasonal issues. Um, so thanks again for everyone joining us with those. But also I want to thank especially uh, today Courtney and Nathan, who are our backroom producers and do all the hard work to get this done um, and especially uh, Courtney who I think has brought us a bottle of champagne to now enjoy <laughs> sorry Tom that you're remote oh, great. <laughs> in view of the fact I, I think that we are at the end of the first year of the sports law podcast we've had seven episodes now in in our year one and uh, over 10,000 downloads, or about 10,000 downloads, I think it is. So uh, my final thanks, then, is to each of you, the listeners, to listening to us, uh, for listening to us. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Sports Law Podcast with me, Nick DiMarco of Blackstone Chambers. For more information, you can find me on Twitter and LinkedIn, and of course, visit our website at www.blackstonechambers.com.